Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book and read it, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. That's why I'm asking you to make a decision to contribute to our annual fundraising and subscription drive to raise $100,000 by May 24th. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription for $50. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution to our $100,000 goal. Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and I've lost count of how many times Danielle Smith has had to apologize for things she said. This podcast, as you probably know by now, is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside my silos, and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. Today is episode 14, Bitcoin or Bust. This is an episode I've been dying to do ever since the podcast started. My position on crypto and Bitcoin, I think, is pretty clear. I, I'm not a fan. I, I've never really been able to see the value in it beyond serving as a vehicle for financial speculation. And that position hasn't exactly been swayed over the last few years. But I think my bigger problem with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is the culture that sprung up around them. One that has some decidedly unpleasant elements. Its biggest proponents often sound like they're rooting against society, or that they want to see our existing monetary system collapse under the weight of its own apparent hypocrisy. This would, of course, do untold damage to the lives of millions, maybe billions of people. But as long as the Bitcoiners come out ahead, some of them seem to feel like that's an acceptable outcome. And then, of course, there's all the fraud and failure, from companies like Sam Bankman Freed's FTX, to Terra USD and Celsius, all of which branded themselves to some extent as safer alternatives to the conventional banking system. I have no problem with someone taking a risk and either making lots of money or losing their investment in the process. That's capitalism. But I do have a problem when capitalists try to pretend that their product is something that it isn't. But these recent events don't seem to have shaken the faith that a lot of people still have in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. If anything, they may have strengthened it. And so I wanted to have one of them on to help me understand why they still believe in Bitcoin and what value they see adding to their lives and potentially to ours. It wasn't super easy to find one. As I said, I've, I've been beating the bushes for months, but we have a willing taker right now in Adam O'Brien. He's the founder of Bitcoin Well, an Alberta-based publicly traded company that bills itself as Canada's premier non-custodial Bitcoin destination. And don't worry, we'll get into that bit of jargon in a moment. He's a self-described Bitcoin maximalist, again, we'll get to that, and an enthusiastic believer in Bitcoin's ability to serve as a store of value, which is no small consideration in an economy racked by inflation. 
So Adam, welcome to Maxed Out. Max, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So let's start at the start. What does Bitcoin do and why should we care? Effectively, Bitcoin is programmable money, which is backed by the energy it takes to produce it. So right now we have money issued by the government, which is not backed by anything other than the fact that we believe the government will take it in the future. If you take a step back and try to understand what money is or what money was originally designed to be, it was designed to be a place to store the value you create with your time, right? You and I are going to work every single day, maybe 200 days of the year, however many days you want to call it. And we hope that when we're 85, we don't have to work for 2,000 hours a year to pay our rent and buy a sandwich. And the only way to do that is with a vehicle that best represents your time. Bitcoin is the best vehicle to store your time to move it into the future. Now, I mentioned in the intro that the business that you founded is a non-custodial exchange. Can you explain the difference between custodial and non-custodial exchanges? Because I think that's a key part of a lot of the big news stories we've seen in crypto over the last year, where we have these exchanges going bankrupt, failing, whatever, correct me if I'm wrong, but these tend to be the custodial ones, the ones that hold people's Bitcoin and then do things with it, invest it, lend it out, whatever it might be. Whereas what you're doing is non-custodial. So just walk us through the difference there really quickly. The difference between a custodial and a non-custodial exchange is where the money ends up after you purchase it or where the Bitcoin ends up or the crypto ends up after you purchase it. The difference between being custodial and non-custodial is when a customer sends us money, we send Bitcoin directly to their address that they own and control. So you have to have a wallet first. This is completely flipped from a custodial exchange, which you can sign up, send them money, buy Bitcoin, and then never, ever, ever give them a personal wallet of yours. And they'll just keep and hold the money. Whether their terms of service say they can or not, they will just simply do whatever the heck they want with that money until you ask for it back. This is effectively the same way that banks treat it. In the custodial exchanges, they were created, they were set up, that sort of concept became popular because people were worried about having their wallets stolen or misplacing their wallets. I remember the story of, uh, I think it's out of the UK, but someone had a couple of Bitcoins, forgot about them. And then the drive that they were on was thrown out and they wanted to like go to the landfill and find it. And they, right. they never could. Like, Here's the interesting thing about that. If you actually valued something, do you forget about it, <laughs> right? Like the best way not to throw out a few hundred million dollars is don't put a few hundred million dollars in the garbage. If you actually believe in Bitcoin and you believe it will have value, go through the effort, put in the time to learn about how to secure it properly and then secure it properly. Yeah, I guess no one's going to be forgetting about the Bitcoin on their drive today, given how much they would have to pay to buy it. Whereas if you bought it a decade ago or, or a little less than a decade ago for 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 50 bucks, it would be much easier to forget about it. Sort of like a baseball card that you put in a shoebox and then suddenly, oh, it's worth Bingo. You know, $5,000 and you know your mom threw it out. So yeah, that's a reasonable argument. I do wonder about the store value case. I've talked to Bitcoin crypto people about this, and I think there's an, a very compelling case, especially if you live in a country that is less stable than Canada, where the government might do something to inflate the value of the currency. They might seize the banking system. You just don't have the faith and confidence in the system that you probably should here. In that situation, having your money in crypto makes a in, lot of sense. In Bitcoin, though. Concede that point. Yeah. I just don't understand it if you're in Canada. If you're in a place like this where our banking system is a lot more well-regulated, a lot more reliable, 
you know, you look at the value of crypto from the beginning of the rate hiking cycle in March of 2022 to now, you would think, okay, rates are going up, inflation's going up, value of crypto should be going up, but the value of crypto went down, value of Bitcoin went down by almost 50%. So if it's a store of value, what happened there? Why did it go up so much and then go down so much when it really should be, if it's a store of value, something much more stable? Yeah. So we're kind of talking about two different things here. We're talking about one, the store of value, and the other is like the sovereignty, the ability to have securing the money. Both things you said are off the top with like a foreign government that can seize the banking system or inflate the dollar. Both those things happened in Canada over the last three years. Canada is not exempt from these like bank seizures and inflationary measures. In fact, the Canadian dollar, the money supply in Canada tripled over the last three years. I wouldn't necessarily say that we're like exempt from these horrific monetary policies. But when you talk about store of value, Bitcoin's in this really weird, awkward, like pimply teenager stage where it's equal parts risk asset. People that don't need to store their value in Bitcoin are using it as this risk kind of head, this vehicle as an investment. Not the intended purpose of Bitcoin, but an unintended consequence because of Bitcoin's properties and because of the free market. Then there's a whole other group that are using it as its intended purpose, which is a store of value, which is like me personally, I've been buying Bitcoin every two weeks for like 10 years. I'll never stop buying Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin at 80 bucks. I bought Bitcoin at 80,000 bucks. I bought Bitcoin four days ago. I bought Bitcoin. Like it really doesn't matter to me what the price of Bitcoin is because I understand the protocol in which governs Bitcoin and because I understand the store of value properties. Like I didn't sell at the top. I didn't sell at the bottom. I sell Bitcoin when I need to use the value that I've saved up with my time. And that's at some point in the future. But yeah, if you're treating it like a risk asset, then then it will be treated like a risk asset. The same is true of any asset that we currently look at as a store of value. Take housing, for example. Certain markets of houses are red hot right now for a number of different reasons. Lots of them free market, lots of them market manipulation. But there are other jurisdictions where people are selling their houses because they can't afford them anymore. And we're seeing a little market crash in, in certain markets. And that strictly depends on how the market is perceiving and then treating the asset in question. Fair. Does the sort of wild gyrations in the price of Bitcoin, does that not undermine the case that people like you were trying to make to others that it is a store of value? I mean, I think you, your parents are, are entrepreneurs. You have the entrepreneur's mindset. You have that sort of stomach of steel where you can gut out these sorts of big swings in the value of things and have the faith that in the long term, this product I believe in, this investment will go up. Most people don't have that level of fortitude. You know, they bail on their stocks when the market starts to crash. They do the wrong things at the wrong time. So if I'm someone who wants to have their money retain its value, I invest in Bitcoin and it drops 30%. What do I do there? How do I maintain the sort of fortitude that folks like you seem to have? If you have the conviction that Bitcoin over the long term is a place that your money will be safe, then Bitcoin dropping 30% in the short term shouldn't matter. And Bitcoin and houses are quite similar in a lot of ways. Like if you had a hundred grand and you know that you needed that hundred grand at some point in the near term, buying a house would be a really stupid place <laughs> to put that hundred grand. They're difficult to sell. The market's volatile. You need people's help to sell it. It's just not a good place to store short-term value. But if you had a hundred grand and you were like, I definitely don't need this for 25 years then buying a little condo that can pay itself off and then probably accumulate value over the next 25 years is probably a pretty good spot for it. That same mindset should be taken with Bitcoin. If you've got money that you don't need in the short term that you're trying to preserve over time, 
then a portion of that money, in my opinion, should go into Bitcoin and held it in the long term. You've made this comparison a couple of times between Bitcoin and a house. And I think the difference there is that number one, you can live in a house. I don't think you can live in a Bitcoin. And houses, if you buy them in the right, if you're not buying them in Vancouver right now or Toronto, they tend to throw off a, a stream of cash flow that you can apply to, you can save, you can pay down the mortgage, you can do lots of things with that. Bitcoin does not, to my knowledge, have dividend yield or an income stream like that. And I think exchanges and products that have tried to create ones out of it have failed. Isn't Bitcoin more like a baseball card or a collectible? Uh, something that we've agreed has value because of its scarcity, because there's a lot of people that want it, but it has no intrinsic value the way that a house does or food does. Yeah. Bitcoin, I think, is a lot closer to gold than it is to a baseball card. Anything that has value only has value because somebody had to spend energy or spend value to achieve it. Gold is completely useless if you can just snap your fingers and have a gold bar in your hand. The Bitcoin algorithm uh, mimics this perfectly through a series of algorithmic protocols that the Bitcoin miners solve, for lack of a better term. I do want to comment, though, like the difference between a house and Bitcoin. The difference is that a house is a job and Bitcoin is an instrument like gold. The only reason you earn an income stream from a house is if you're working on it, whether that be through renovations or through uh, renting it out or through hiring a company to rent it out. But at the end of the day, it's a second income stream because it's a job. But houses also have their downsides where they require maintenance, they're expensive to maintain or they're expensive to hold, and the government actually penalizes you for holding it uh, in the way of property taxes. So uh, I, I, I would argue that a Bitcoin is a much better store of value long term than a house for those reasons. You mentioned this a little earlier in our in our conversation that we have similarly unpleasant monetary policy choices here as as happened in other countries where Bitcoin is a very, I think, obvious uh, store of value. We have some audio from an interview you did with Blockchain North, which calls itself the first blockchain media. Interesting. You suggested that the occupation of Ottawa last February was a kind of a validation of the the Bitcoin case you'd been making for years. We've witnessed 2,000 citizens have their banks shut down for donating money to a protest. I thought we lived in a country that embodied and, and enjoyed the opportunity to protest. The government chose on a whim that it did not. And now 2,000 bank accounts seized. Now, to be fair, according to the RCMP, as of late 2022 in February, there were 219 bank accounts that were frozen under the Emergencies Act, and that affected 57 people or organizations. And far from protecting people from this act, crypto assets were actually captured under it. Paul Champ, who was the lawyer representing a lot of the Ottawa residents in a bunch of different legal actions at the time, said, quote, we were able to get some of the defendants to transfer all of the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that was in their control to an independent escrow agent. Isn't, isn't this the, the fundamental key. contradiction here? Right. We were able to What's get. What's the key? So in the banking yep. system, boom, seized. No questions asked. No need to go to a house, no need to ask somebody politely and then impolitely and then threaten with violence. Boom, bank account seized. We were able to get, implying they probably didn't, but would have potentially gone through a series of actions in order to coerce them to transfer the Bitcoin. At the end of the day, Bitcoin that is in your custody is in your full control at all times. And sure, someone comes to your house and puts a gun to your head and says, send me all your Bitcoin. There's no asset on planet Earth. No protocol exists that can prevent those measures of violence to send assets. And I think that that key difference is so important because 
I do not believe that seizing those bank accounts, while it was it was actually voted that it was not legal. And so that straight up was wrong, right? The Emergencies Act is not able to freeze banks. So just as a point of clarification, the government did vote in favor of the Emergencies Act and passing it and uh, giving themselves the ability to restrict bank accounts that were potentially engaged in illegal activities. You're probably right. They did vote in their favor. That's typically what governments do. But it was against the law to seize those bank accounts. All right. We, we will agree to disagree on that front because I don't think that it was against the law. But circling back around to my question that was that whole windup was building towards, which is, isn't there sort of a fundamental contradiction here that for Bitcoin and crypto, but let's say Bitcoin to become truly legitimate in the eyes of enough people, it needs more regulation. But that regulation is going to expose it to the same sorts of oversights and legal obligations that more traditional financial instruments like banks and bank accounts already deal with as a matter of course. I think it depends why you want regulation and it depends who has control over the regulation. I think without question, a regulation of Bitcoin is so welcomed in my industry. Like still to this day, I run a publicly traded Bitcoin company and I can't get a bank account because of that. Like it's pretty appalling and, and pretty insulting, I think, that we live in a world where Bitcoin is demonized simply because of its lack of regulation, yet the government doesn't really regulate it. And so do I think it needs regulation to the point where the government can seize it without question? No, that's our current financial system. I don't think that's the right way because like, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, at any point in a democracy, the government can change. And so if there are rules in place that gives government full power to your money and the government changes and you no longer like the person in charge, then that new person has full access to your money. Those rules are bad for freedom, bad for society, bad for sovereignty. And I don't think Bitcoin needs to be regulated to the point where anyone can take it at any time. I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but I do want to push back just a little bit here on the notion that banks and governments shouldn't be allowed to, to take your money. Banks have always been allowed to take your money if you're involved in something illegal. If you're money laundering, if you're engaged in criminal activity and you're using a bank account to process those funds, the government has always been able to get a court order to have your money seized, to have your accounts frozen. That is true of corporations. That is true of individuals. It has always been true. And I think it is a good thing yes. that it's true. I mean, we don't want people to be able to conduct illegal activities. And that was the statute under which the federal government proceeded with the Emergencies Act. The determination was that there may be illegal activity going on. The funds could be coming from Russia, from we don't know where. And it's being used to support an activity in Ottawa that was fundamentally illegal. None of that was proven. If I'm laundering money, then yeah, for sure, take the money. If I'm maybe laundering money, I think we live in a society that you should at least prove that I'm laundering money before you're able to take the money. Well, you hold the funds and then you release them. If you determine that, oh no, these funds are, they, they come from a provenance that is okay. There were some issues with some of the money coming across the border. They did prove that, but I take your point that we're not going to agree on the, the fundamental nature of the protests there. I just think we need to be clear that governments have always been able to freeze bank accounts in this country. And I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. Help me understand your view on money printing, because I find this just an interesting point of disagreement, I guess. You said it was appalling that we print money in this country, that our central banks engage in quantitative easing and increase the money supply. What would be worse for Canadians, inflation or deflation? Inflation is 100% worse for Canadians. And the reason for that 
is because it takes the value that you create today, right? You and I go to work today for 12 bucks an hour and it makes that 12 bucks an hour only have eight bucks worth of purchasing power in a couple of years. And so if you want your value to be preserved and maybe even increase over time, you need a vehicle which deflates, not inflates over that period of time. Okay. Help me understand how the greatest period of deflation in the last 120 years led up to the Second World War, where you had the great financial crisis of 1929. You had massive deflation throughout the 1930s, widely considered the greatest economic dislocation in modern history, and sort of provided the, the soil in which fascism and national socialism took root. This is sort of my the issue I have with the inflation-deflation conversation. Deflation is horrific. Uh, it creates these sort of self-sustaining cycles where people stop spending, they stop investing, they stop going, they stop working, companies lay people off, it feeds on itself. To me, that is much more destructive to someone's livelihood than prices increasing by two to three percent every year. Would you agree or disagree? Well, if it's two to three percent every year, then then I agree. We have no problem. Okay. Uh, if it's eight to nine percent every year, probably a little bit more of a problem. If it's yes. 30 to 40 percent a year, bigger problems. If it's a hundred percent a year, massive problems. So there's never been a history in time period where it's been two to three percent per year on any kind of like reasonable time frame to look at. Even when stated inflation is two to three percent a year, prices are going up by a lot more than two to three percent a year. So so I don't think that argument towards inflation is true, but I will agree with you. There are periods in deflationary economies where there is problems. The world is cyclical. Our life is cyclical. We have to expect that things should be cyclical. When we try to remove cycles with manipulation, that's fine and that works for a period of time. But we have to understand that we're manipulating cycles. The same way, if you've got too many wolves in the area, then over time, the wolves will actually shrink down because they will overeat and they will get rid of all their prey. And then their prey will grow up and there'll be too many rabbits in the ecosystem. And then all of a sudden, there'll be too many rabbits, but the wolves will have more food than they need. They'll be able to reproduce. And we enjoy these ecosystem cycles and the economies are and should be the same way. That's not to say they're not without pain, but our job as as society and, and the job from the government, certainly, is not to manipulate the pain into like massive boom and bust cycles that we're seeing with the fiat economy now. I think as a society, we should learn to embrace and then learn to and educate ourselves to maybe not welcome the pain, but certainly to be prepared for the pain. I definitely disagree with that. I, I think that human society is, is a little more complicated than the Wolf Lake cycle. We've seen what happens when we simply allow the, the natural boom and bust cycles to play out in full. And we had the Great Depression. We had fascism. We had Nazism. People do not respond well to pain. They often seek solutions for the pain that are very painful. And I think central banks take a lot of heat. They get a lot of criticism and they make mistakes. They're not perfect. But their role, as I see it in society at least, is to smooth out the booms and the busts to ease the pain when it could be so much worse. And I look back to the financial crisis in 2008. I look back to what happened during COVID. If they had just let the bottom fall out of the economy in both of those situations, I shudder to think what would have happened to a lot of people. And, and they're the people who are least prepared for those sorts of situations. It's not you and me. It's not people who are educated about money and finance and you know, have an entrepreneurial background and, and save. It's people on the margins and they would be the links. I don't think they would feel very good about being exposed to the wolves. 
No, I totally agree. But both those examples of 2008 and 1970 and then 1933 and the government steps in, all those catastrophes are exacerbated and they're getting bigger and they're getting more frequent because of the manipulation that we've had. So rather than having little booms, little busts, little booms, little busts on an overall kind of smoothed out period, what we've done is we've kind of put band-aids over top of the economy and we are preparing, we are running towards an absolutely catastrophic economic collapse that no amount of printing, no amount of government oversight, no amount of government overreach, no amount of government manipulation will be able to protect us from. Two things. One thing is COVID was not a, a normal economic cycle. That was not sort of, you know, surplus demand leads to higher prices, gets inflation, and they have to cool things off and we get a, you know, we get a recession. That was just a very weird once in a lifetime, hopefully, touch wood, a situation where we have a, a healthcare crisis and, and basically demand just goes to collapses in a way we've never seen before. Well, demand didn't go to zero. It was government manipulation that forced the world to shut down, right? COVID didn't cause the world to shut down. The government's response to COVID is what caused the world to shut down. So there is a bit of nuance in there where if things don't shut down, sure, there is a period where people are freaked out, right? This big sell-off of, of risk assets happen. People default back to immediately usable money and we see what happens there. And then nobody's allowed to go to work. Nobody's allowed to shop. The government forces the economy to shut down. Now, I'm not here to tell you what's right or what's wrong, but it was not the health scare that caused the economy to stop. It was the government manipulation that caused the economy to stop. Well, it was the government trying to prevent people from dying and protecting sure. people from, from a virus they didn't understand and was unclear. I mean, I think we have a lot of hindsight bias right now when we look back to March, February of 2020 and sort of go, well, we would have done this, we would have done that. I remember at the time, I don't know what it was like for you, but I remember at the time it was very uncertain. Your head kind of ran wild with what could ha what could be happening, where things could go. And I think government decision makers had, they certainly had more information, but they didn't have a lot more than we did. And based on on the circumstances and the situation, they they had a bleeding patient that they had to bandage up. And, and maybe they used too much bandage, maybe they used too much painkillers, but they did stop the bleeding. I think that is important to remember. And yeah, they maybe they, could, they well, and they could have. They certainly could have just said, "Ah, it's fine. It's the flu. Let her rip." Who knows what that would have done to the economy? Who knows how much damage that would have done to people, to businesses over well, the, the longer? Well, the economy would be fine. Death rates are is what we're is what we're wondering about. I, I think if people are dying, I'm not sure that the economy is going to just keep trucking along. Let me just ask you about the the vision of the future that you sort of painted there, where we're sort of you know we're stumbling, we're, we're fumbling inevitably towards this big catastrophe that just keeps getting stronger. You were amping up the heat on the, the pot that's on the boil, and eventually it's going to boil over. I get the sense, and I sort of said this at the outset, that Bitcoin advocates want that to happen because it will prove them right, because they will be able to say, look, I told you so, we knew this was going to happen. Are you rooting for that outcome to happen? Wouldn't it be better if, if things just normalized and we didn't have the catastrophic economic outcome? Do I want a collapse of uh, the economy, of the Canadian banking system, of the Canadian dollar? No, 100% not. I have so many friends, so many people that I love that will be catastrophically ruined when it happens. Am I passionate about the fix for that? And am I trying to warn as many people as possible before it happens? 100%. I think that like this is inevitable. I think if you look historically and you look at the history of fiat, you look at the history of money, you look at the government overreach and the government monetary policy for the last, even the last three years, let's say the last 50 years, 
it, like the writing is 100% on the wall. I think if you look through a lens, you can identify that. I think it's irresponsible to say otherwise if you believe that. And I also think it's irresponsible not to offer the solution when it's pretty clear and in front of me. So help me understand that future where the banking system has collapsed. Millions of people are insolvent. The government can't do anything about it. And you have Bitcoin in a digital wallet. How does that help you? Would that not be a situation where widespread lawlessness, institutions of government have collapsed, people are taking things into their own hands? How is Bitcoin suddenly going to be not affected by this chaotic future that you foresee? My family and I will have the means and we've got our Bitcoin on our little SD card, put it in our pocket and walk if we have to. <laughs> Hopefully we got a couple jerry cans of gas and a truck, but we'll walk as far as we can. We'll have the money in our control, in our pockets. If someone comes along with a truck, I'll say, hey, I'll transfer you a thousand dollars equivalent of value right now from me directly to you. No middleman, no one to take it in between, no one to tax it in between directly. Will you take me a thousand kilometers for a thousand dollars? And then him and I together are traveling. Uh, we get to a cattle farmer who then has uh, some cattle and maybe he's got a sign that says, if you come work for five hours, I'm getting tired here. If you work for five hours then go, and I can say, well, why don't I give you five hours or 10 hours worth of money? and or worth of Bitcoin that you can go spend elsewhere. And that's, that's how things start to rebuild. Only, I think it's fair to say, if the guy with the truck or the farmer believe in Bitcoin and they acknowledge its value. Well, what else would they believe in? I mean, I think in that- like, what, else, what else is there in that point? In that situation, I think it would be uh, cigarettes, whiskey, guns, food, tangible things. To your point, those people that value cigarettes and whiskey over sound money will not be in a good position when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. I guess my point is just that in the hell in a handbasket scenario, the idea that a digital currency will have widespread universal value relies on the idea that the people exchanging it will recognize its value. And I think at least historically, when societies collapse, when things go sideways, People tend to revert to more sort of basic means of currency, means of exchange. But I take your point on uh, it being a bet that you're making. And it certainly doesn't make me feel great about my mortgage here. But, uh, you know, I'm ride or die on the existing system. So, uh, you know, there we are. <laughs> anything anything you, you want to tell us? Lots of people ask, how much should I buy? Uh, my response is always, that's up for you to answer. But my recommendation is is 2%. I say... 2% of your, of your income should be enough for you to want to save and also should be little enough. If I'm wrong and Bitcoin is not what it says it is, even though we can, we can audit it, uh, isn't backed by the energy, even though that's also auditable. And if energy no longer is, is value and I'm wrong, then 2% shouldn't put you in a place where you are in dire straits. I appreciate you coming on the podcast here. I know we disagreed on a few things, but, uh, I thought we did it pretty agreeably and, and uh, I really appreciate you doing it because, you know, like I said, it has been hard to find someone who wants to share their journey and you shared yours, I think, in a very convincing, compelling way. I can see your side of the argument a lot more clearly than I could when we started and I think that's always the advantage of things like this. Thanks again for this, Adam. Amazing. Thanks so much, Max. Looking forward to the future. Well, that was a lively episode. I want to thank Adam O'Brien for joining me. 
and for taking up the position of a Bitcoin advocate with so much enthusiasm and honesty. Now first, that fact check that I promised. Yes, the House of Commons did vote in favor of the motion affirming the Liberal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act on February 21st by a count of 185 in favor to 151 opposed. The act itself had been invoked on February 14th, but the government needed the approval of the House of Commons within seven days. It clearly got that. And no, there was nothing illegal in that, as Adam suggested. It was not against the law to freeze bank accounts. And as I think I made clear, we shouldn't want it to be. If illegal activity is suspected of taking place, the government should be able to put a freeze on that person's account until they get to the bottom of the issue. That's exactly what happened here. There are some episodes of this podcast where I move closer to my guest position once it's over. But after this one, I think I might even be further away than when I started. The notion that the biggest Bitcoin enthusiasts are effectively rooting for the collapse of the banking system leaves a very, very sour taste in my mouth. So too does the idea of trustlessness, which is a key selling feature for the version of the Bitcoin model that folks like Adam subscribe to. Yes, our currency depends heavily on trust. Trust in governments, trust in banks, trust in each other. But that's a good thing from where I sit. A society in which we're willing to pursue a common good and look out for each other depends fundamentally on trust. Any effort to erode or undermine that, in my view, is inherently antisocial, and it ought to be called out as such. I've long thought of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin as glorified libertarian baseball cards, or maybe nihilist beanie babies. But I'm increasingly inclined to view them as something much more sinister. Trojan horses for the kinds of antisocial values and ideas that will erode the foundations of our liberal democratic society if left unchecked. They can't do that on their own, of course. But it's hard to shake the idea that some Bitcoin enthusiasts would be happy to see that happen, if only so they could be proven right in the bitter end. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcast here at the National Observer. Every donation helps. Please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kazema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. Next week is Hot Politics with David Mackay. And I'm Max Fawcett. I'll see you in two weeks.